Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Do you want to, should we just watch it? Let's watch it. Okay. Life's not fair, is it, my little friend? I've probably seen it four or five times, and I still, yeah. get, I still get all tingly. I do, too! <laughs> this is Han McCarthy, co-host of our sister podcast, Civics 101, fellow millennial theater kid, and I watching a movie trailer. Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. This summer, Disney is releasing a remake of one of the biggest animated films ever, The Lion King. It's a movie that, if you grew up anywhere near the 90s, was a pretty big deal. So, like, all of these shots yeah. are straight from the cartoon. Are you kidding me? This, of course, the yeah. wildebeest oh stampede. Oh, my God. A thing that I read on the internet while prepping for the story is that while The Lion King is not the top-grossing animated movie ever, it is still the cartoon that had the most attendance, had the highest number of people going to see it in the theater. But a feature of movies that you see as a kid, perhaps even see many times, is that even though they are deeply ingrained in your psyche, even though you find yourself repeating lines that you didn't know you had memorized, sometimes there are layers of meaning in those movies that you didn't realize were there because you were a kid. This is just a theory of mine, but I think part of the reason maybe it was so popular is because it's kind of like tale as old as time. Do you know what I'm saying? In this instance, the thing that I didn't realize, but which Hannah, who's more familiar with Shakespeare, pointed out, is that the plot of The Lion King is actually the retelling of another story. Uh, We're talking about Hamlet here, Sam. Hamlet. Shakespeare. Just like in Hamlet, you've got a young prince. My dad just showed me the whole kingdom. And I'm going to rule it all. This one named Simba, his uncle, Scar. Yes, 
Well, forgive me for not leaping for joy. Bad back, you know. Kills his father, the king, Mufasa. Good morning, sire. Good morning, Zazu. Checking in with the morning report. Fire away. There's a bit of the hero's journey thrown in here because Simba runs away and becomes a reluctant hero and doesn't want to retake the throne. I can't go back. Why? You wouldn't understand. The creators, they started writing this thing and they're like looking at the storyboard and they're like, wait a minute. I recognize this story. We just wrote Hamlet. We just wrote Hamlet. For example, you might recall that Mufasa appears before Simba. Do you remember that? Mufasa like comes out of the clouds. Yeah, and, yeah, as a ghost. Yeah, yeah. Like this scene right here. Simba. Father? And this scene is almost exactly like another scene um, found in Hamlet where the ghost of his father appears. Okay. I am thy father's spirit. Remember you are. No, please, don't leave me. Remember. Father. Remember me. Oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like... Come on. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And I just wanted to confirm that this was actually the case. So I found this um, behind the scenes kind of like making of The Lion King. And um, here's how The Lion King was originally pitched after they had like finished writing the script. Mm -hmm. Before I came aboard, it was described as Bambi in Africa with Hamlet thrown in. So Bamblet. 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 Oh my I've considered God. calling you Samlet for a while, but I, the implications <laughs> of that are pretty dark. Um, but I just thought that it was like, it's so interesting that you've got this canon work being reflected in a story about animals, right? Like yeah. a cute Disney movie. For kids. A movie for kids. Yeah. So if a close watching of The Lion King tells us that it's really a retelling of a Shakespearean classic, what else might we learn with a careful look? This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, as we approach the remake of The Lion King, we're doing a deep dive into the original film. A critical analysis of the animals and landscapes, how they're portrayed, what that says about the movie, and what that says about us. Uh, can can everybody can, can just go around and introduce ourselves? Starting with who? You. you. Hello. <laughs> My name is Taylor Quimby, and I'm a producer on Outside In. Uh, Justine Paradise, producer reporter on the creative production unit at New Hampshire Public Radio. Jimmy Gutierrez, producer, hiding lover, hiding defender, till my death. Hannah and my conversation about Hamlet got us thinking. And so we decided that we're going to gather the team, the Brain Trust, and each present arguments about The Lion King and its meaning. And because my argument was about the opening scene, I went first. Okay, I will stand by this scene as being an objectively 
great bit of cinema. Uh, this mm. is the scene where it's just, it's just all of the animals converging on Pride Rock for the presentation of the new baby lion prince, Simba. Uh, you can actually even argue that this opening scene is the reason that this movie was so successful. Disney's original trailer for The Lion King just showed it in its entirety, and that's where all the buzz for it came from, was this trailer. Oh, wow. Huh. It is, I mean, it is, it is good. It's like, good. Look at those gazelle. Legit stirring. So what we're seeing here is a fantasy land. In this opening montage, you see Victoria Falls, which is on the border between Zimbabwe and Zambia, like sort of central sub-Saharan Africa. And next you've got Mount Kilimanjaro, which is in Tanzania, 1,200 miles to the northeast. And later in the movie, there are scenes that show deserts, jungles, grasslands, all within like a day's run of a single male lion. And so this would be like making a movie supposedly set in North America that that in you show in your establishing shot the Rio Grande and Mount Rainier in Washington state and you're just like look America that big monkey which lifts the baby lion yes I'm not sure that species co-occurs with the lion at all. Actually, where does that species occur? So that's Muthama Mwasia. He's the head of the biology department at the University of Cape Town. And the Skype line that I talked to him over wasn't great, but what he's saying there is that Rafiki, who's lifting Simba into the air in the beginning, is a species of ape. He's a mandrel ape that doesn't occur in the same places that lions occur. Oh. So, so in this fantasy land, not only are these iconic African landmarks ludicrously close together, but you've also got all sorts of animals just thrown in that aren't even from the continent. There, there are leaf cutter ants and giant anteaters that are both South American animals. Oh, that's yeah, a very different place. And Rafiki, the mandrel, mandrels don't have tails, right? That's, right. that's something I also read. So he doesn't exist with lions and it's not really a biologically uh, accurate. Right. Is it made up monkey? <laughs> there is a scene where you have a big primate which looks like an orangutan. That to me, seemed out of scene in Africa. None of this is terribly unusual, though, for a Disney movie, right? I mean, a lot of Disney movies take these mm-hmm. fantasy lands that are kind of based on a place, but like a fictionalized version. So what the filmmakers do here is they're creating this generic, quote-unquote, African landscape, but they're not really paying tribute to Africa. They're really just trying to create a sense of an exotic place. But it's frankly, it's part of a bigger pattern when it comes to how Western cultures are viewing Africa, and this is laid out to me by Robert Gooding Williams, who's a professor of African American studies and philosophy at Columbia. Africa is historyless, and 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 Africa on on, on this view um, is uh, it is what it has always been. So if you look at Disney's animated movies before The Lion King, a lot of fairy tales, you know, Sleeping Beauty, Pinocchio, Beauty and the Beast, Robin Hood, stuff from Western cultures mostly. Right around the time of The Lion King, that's when this more problematic period began, right before The Lion King was Aladdin. Uh, right after it mm. came Pocahontas. Oh, yeah. These were Disney's first stabs at, at branching out into other cultures, other geographies. So it's, so it's probably no surprise that they were a mess, that not terribly culturally sensitive, not very accurate. Which is all to say that if you're hoping to learn anything about the African continent, The Lion King is not where you should go. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> kind of duh. What I thought was particularly uh, interesting and ironic about, about The Lion King's depiction of Africa, because that, 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 the way of picturing Africa you know, functions allegorically uh, to represent right. America. So it's like the setting of, quote unquote, Africa, this sort of bland, generic backdrop onto which uh, a story that's really much more about America is painted. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, okay, I mean, I, I understand your point, Sam, that this is not a good representation of Africa. That seems pretty obvious. But, like, 
how is it a representation of America? Ah, well, uh, can you uh, let me jump in here? I, I think I can help clear this up for you. <laughs> you sound like this has been prepared. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been. Yeah. Jimmy here. I'm back. I think the only time I'm on this show is when I get to talk about hyenas. <laughs> That's probably you know, make greatest hits, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. yet you don't have a tattoo yet. <gasps> okay, moving on. Most listeners to this podcast may recall that Jimmy Gutierrez promised to get a hyena tattoo after winning the best animal contest uh, and the mm. the listener favorite. End of year. End of year. I'll have it. So really, I've got the design. Yeah. Wow, that's real commitment. For sure, man. It's hyena. Like, I'm a ride or die. You heard me. I feel so attacked. So attacked. This is me walking out of the, the room right now. What month is it? Is it the seventh month of this new year? Of the following year. Mm. Moving on. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to argue clearly and obviously that the depiction of hyenas in this movie is a complete disaster. Well, 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 Banzai, what have we got here? Mm, I don't know, Shenzi. Uh, what do you think, Ed? Oh. <laughs> yeah, just what I was thinking. A trio of trespassers. And, quite uh, and this is so much more a, a take on race and class in America than having anything to do with animal biology. To help me make this point, I called up Cy Montgomery. Cy! Hey there. Is this my buddy, the hyena lover? She's a New Hampshire author and friend to all creatures. She spent time with Kay Holkamp, the hyena scientist, who we had on last time. And basically, Kay is uh, the Jane Goodall of hyenas. Mm. Now, Sai hasn't seen The Lion King, so I had to walk her through some of these scenes. Uh, and that's including right at the beginning when Zazu calls the hyenas slobbering, mangy, stupid poachers. Poachers. And also... Then he goes on to say that lions are the top of the food chain. Hyenas are the bottom of the food chain. No, not true. Not true at all. Hyenas are actually the second largest and the most formidable predator in the whole Serengeti ecosystem. They are extremely powerful hunters. As you know, a single hyena can take down a wildebeest, which is amazing, and... um, you know, a 130-pound female can eat 30 pounds of, of, of meat all by herself, too. And the reason this, that she gulps down her food is some um, skulking lion is going to come take it away. Hey, um, Kay Holkamp discovered that actually lions steal the rightful kills of hyenas far more often than hyenas steal the kills of lions. Mangy, no good poachers. Let's just put that on loop forever. Let's just put that <laughs> into like our theme music. And the other place this kind of like this depiction is just so off is is so you have the three hyenas, right? You have Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed. Yeah. And Ed is kind of like nonverbal, seems to have like some sort of intellectual disability. He's gnawing on his leg, laughing maniacally. And there's kind of this idea that they're they're just dumb, right? Like the hyenas are just these dumb creatures. And I asked uh I asked Sai about that. They are so super smart. And the reason that they are such successful hunters is that they can coordinate with others. They can anticipate what their prey might be doing. They appear to be able to plan things in advance. They are expert communicators. Even humans have found all different kinds of communications they have. And by the way, that giggle that they give, that hysterical laughing hyena, that's not what we think it is. They're not laughing. That's a sign 
that they are either excited or frightened. Well, I laugh when I'm excited or frightened. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, hey, I, here's the question, though. The, the Lion King got this idea from somewhere, right? They didn't invent the idea that hyenas... No, no, they stole it from other lazy people. <laughs> <laughs> Some hyena blaming here. Roosevelt, Hemingway, all a lot of people have, like, Westerners that have hunted in Africa have come back with these, you know, stereotypes of what hyenas are and how they act, and it's just, it's, it's just lazy. And this is one of the things that we noticed on our safari, is that humans are fixated on big predators, and even if you see a lion sleeping, everyone's like, oh my God, let's look at the lion, and they'll stay fascinated watching this thing sleep while in back of you a wildebeest is giving birth. (laughs) (laughs) We just have a defect. Humans have have a defect. Yeah, yeah. It's the cat thing. So, Taylor, you wanted to know how this is like a movie about America, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is the next part of my argument. And I want to talk about how The Lion King is just like straight propaganda for lion supremacy. (laughs) Take that, you know, read between those lines on that one. (laughs) Supremacy. Uh, hmm. So this argument came from Robert Gooding Williams. And when you watch this movie... This is not subtle at all. Everything the light touches. What about that shadowy place? That's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. But I thought a king can do whatever he wants. Hyenas like living beyond the borders, right? They live in the bad land. Mm -hmm. This is juxtaposed to Pride Rock where everything is paradise and things like live in harmony and everyone is invited except hyenas. It's the circle of life minus hyenas. Yeah, exactly. And then when, when hyenas are actually invited back in... So it is with a heavy heart that I assume the throne. Yet out of the ashes of this tragedy, we shall rise to greet the dawning of a new era in which lion and hyena come together in a great and glorious to their, you know, scars like trying to extend full citizenship to hyenas saying, hey, come and be a part of this. What happens? Everything dies. The circle of life is now the circle of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also this other scene. So and it's within the Be Prepared song where the uh, you you kind of flash from the goose stepping hyena army with scar on a platform to hyenas in what appears to be like this high rise. And they're all kind of like leaning out of like what look like little windows. In this like overcrowded kind of like project looking building. You remember this now, a don't you? A city. Yes. Also. Yes. Yes. And Urban. So exactly. And then also, I mean, as far as like the hyenas, they're the only one like the two main characters outside of James Earl Jones who are poor, who are voiced by black and brown actors who are also speaking a sort of like slang. Oh, scars, just you. <laughs> you were afraid it was somebody important. Yeah, you don't like Mufasa. Yeah. I see. Now that's power. Tell me about it. I just hear that name and I shudder. Mufasa. Do it again. Mufasa. Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. It tingles me. I'm surrounded by idiots. So not only is the portrayal of hyenas here wrong, but it's the way that they're portrayed, uh, that you have this problematic messaging about the way that poor people of color exist in urban spaces. And this is also Robert Gooding Williams' bigger point. That vision is also in in the movie a, a, a vision in, in the perspective of the movie a, a picture of a perfect polity more exactly a picture of the polity that America would be that the United States would be absent the denizens of the ghetto absent the existence of the largely black 
and Latino denizens of the ghetto. If you remove Scar and you remove the hyenas, this is like, what does, what does this place look like without black and brown people? It is fully restored into this sort of a health. And so I think like that is like my argument of like, this is actually straight propaganda for lion supremacy. Woofda. <laughs> All right, who's next? Okay, so so I have an argument as well. Um, and my main argument is that you can't really um, talk about the, the problems of the Lion King, the problems of representing Africa without talking about Rafiki. Mm. Uh, enough already. What is that supposed to mean anyway? It means you're a baboon. And I'm not. <laughs> and uh, therefore, he, uh, he fits neatly into Hollywood's recurring magical Negro stereotype. This is a term I want to just say that was coined by Spike Lee in 2001. It's sort of deliberately creaky and outdated. Like the word Negro is not an appropriate term to use and it's not what I'd usually use. Um, so Spike Lee coined this in response to the film The Legend of Bagger Vance. It came out in 2000 uh, in which Will Smith plays a caddy who helps golfer Matt Damon uh, get his swing back. I haven't even seen this movie and it's already upsetting. Well, you lost your swing. We got to go find it. So this is set in uh, 1930s Georgia, and when uh, Spike Lee was talking about this was at Yale, he said, you know, blacks are getting lynched left and right, and uh, Bagger Vance is more concerned with improving Matt Damon's golf swing. So the basics of the Magical Negro is that it is a cousin of the, like, happy slave and noble savage tropes. Is this like a book that Disney went back to again and again? (laughs) 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 We got something here. Main playbook. Which one should we use this time? And so you can recognize the Magical Negro when you see a black character, often in kind of a lowly position, like a garbage man or a caddy, who speaks in very, like, folksy terms, and then he also uses his uh, or her magical or spiritual gifts. Key and Peele make fun of this as they are wont to do. The more garbage in the can, the better it feels to dump it all out. (laughs) I suppose that's why we let it get so full in the first place. So I'll, I'll start by saying as entertainment and as spectacle, I love The Lion King, right? And it puts me as an Africanist in this kind of weird position where I'm like, ah, oh, there's so much wrong with it. But it, for pure entertainment, it's really fun. Can I just say everybody I interviewed said that same thing? They're like, I actually love this movie, but. Yeah. <laughs> so this is Ami Visha. She is an assistant professor of global studies and anthropology at Pacific Lutheran University. And she has a particular focus on humanitarian imagery. So like how NGOs depict underdevelopment. Um, quote unquote. And she taught a course at Duke called Africa is Not a Country, uh, which, among other things, focuses on depictions of Africa in popular culture. So, one, I see like the clear choice of accent for Rafiki as being like the closest accent that we might get to some sort of generic African accent. Although, the actor who played Rafiki, who voiced Rafiki, Robert Guillaume, has said in interviews that he was actually going for a Jamaican accent. No. What? <laughs> so, and meanwhile, Simba's voiced by Ferris Bueller. So, um, <laughs> Life moves pretty fast. So if we accept that Rafiki is the only African in the movie, there is another problem because Rafiki's a monkey. Of course, there's all sorts of long-standing racist tropes that reduce black people to monkeys in a variety of ways. Um, And of course, Rafiki's a sort of shaman storyteller, uh, the magical part of the magical Negro. There's also this kind of magical, mystical 
element that I think we place on faith practices um, that are non-Abrahamic, right? That kind of reduce them to something that's weird and eccentric and silly and difficult to follow. But I, I would say that the, the most important part of this is that Rafiki really exists as a plot device to help Simba on his journey. Mm-hmm. So he appears at very particular moments that are significant for Simba, like when he's born right. and when he needs a spiritual guide. And that's it, right? Rafiki doesn't seem to have any interests, for example, outside of that particular lineage and supporting the, that particular pride of lions. He really doesn't have, he's not in any other scene. It doesn't serve. Except for when he's painting. But, but that's painting even. Simba. <laughs> he's painting yeah. Simba, yeah. So there's one scene after Scar has just killed Mufasa. We could pull it up. Mufasa's death is a terrible tragedy. Um, and the lionesses are sort of gathered around him as Scar announces the new era in which lion and hyena are coming together. And the lionesses all kind of look up in horror. And then the camera zooms out and Rafiki is on a rock nearby. Um, and he's just put it, he puts his face in his hands and shakes his head in grief. <laughs> And so he is so invested in the, hey, the segregation of lion and hyena and the hegemony of lions. So throughout our conversation, there was this article that Ami kept referencing. It was called How to Write About Africa by this Kenyan author, Binyavanga Wainena. It's a satirical article, came out in 2005, and it lays out all these stereotypes about how people write about Africa. Like, um, there's this one part in it when he's listing the African characters you're allowed to have, uh, which include uh, naked warriors, loyal servants, diviners and seers, ancient wise men. And um, when Wainana describes the uh, loyal servant, he uh, he describes him as someone who always behaves like a seven-year-old, which, thinking about like the quirkiness of Rafiki... Um, it just feels like he's one of these characters, like the magical Negro is one way of describing it, but it's a familiar thing when you write about Africa. So in some, Rafiki is the only African in The Lion King. He's the closest to a human character in the form of a shaman mandrel character. And he's a combination of stereotypes that um, mainly the magical Negro, which serves only as a plot device to help Simba on his journey to his royal destiny. This isn't looking good for The Lion King. I you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Okay, so I have one last argument, which is that if this is a story that is enforcing American class and race relations, how is that work being done? And to make this point, I'm going to focus on one idea that is that is really central to all of that. Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. As king, you need to understand that balance and respect all the creatures, from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Dad, don't we eat the antelope? Yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. And so, we are all connected in the great circle of life. The circle of life. Yeah. In particular, the language that I find interesting here is this idea that everything's in this delicate balance Mm. and that that balance has to be preserved by not altering anything. Don't touch anything. And to me, this is a very explicit call out to an idea that, well, it's actually a call out to a popular interpretation of an idea that came around in the 1960s called the Gaia Hypothesis. Anyone heard of this? Gaia Hypothesis. Gaia, like Mother Earth kind of idea. Right. So this was developed by a guy named James Lovelock, who was an atmospheric physicist and who actually studied the ozone layer. And this is the idea that that life works to create the conditions that perpetuate life, like plants create oxygen, which makes the atmosphere breathable for the rest of us. And and as you might imagine, this idea, which was really actually mostly about atmospheric physics, it attracted a lot of less than scientific thinking. The hypothesis did end up drawing a lot of sort of new age fervent ecologists, if you like, type people into supporting it. And a lot of the uh, stuff that surround, ended up surrounding the Gaia hypothesis um, was not particularly strong scientifically, let's say. So that's Toby Tyrell. He, he wrote the book On Gaia. And when you see how these new agey ideas are interpreted in the context of the movie, it's, it's to rationalize the hierarchy with the lions on the top and the hyenas on the bottom. And it's, it's to say that this must not be messed with because it's a natural system and it's part of this delicate balance. And then if you mess with it by bringing, say, the hyenas into the pride lands and Scar taking over, the natural result of that is the, the pollution and doom that you see during Scar's reign. Up is down. Black is white. Hyenas and lions. <laughs> ah! It's Zazu's in the, Let it in the studio somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's also... Scar is portrayed as like being spiritually corrupt when in reality, like if there are two males, one male kills the other as isn't yeah. that what happens literally in nature? Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, you know, the Serengeti is a grassland ecosystem and drought and fire and all the things that were portrayed as being Scar's fault are right. also natural. But through the frame of the movie, they're a result of the corruption of this hierarchy. And also it like does the sort of 1492 thing where whatever when white people encountered the place, that's nature. And like that's the like sort of state it should be in mm-hmm. forever. Right. And and so this is what Toby Tyrell's book is really all about. It's the idea that there's some sort of great natural order, some sort of 
ideal state of na- nature, there's there's not much evidence for that. Like the fact that the atmosphere has oxygen, for example, like it's great now, but but when oxygen producing organisms first came around, everything else on the planet couldn't survive in an atmosphere with oxygen. It was actually the cause of the first mass extinction. And, and the oxygen won't be around forever. So um. breathe it up <laughs> while you can, Jimmy. Back to the, <laughs> well, back to the beginning. <laughs> well, and and in fact, with the very origin of the Gaia hypothesis, Lovelock came up with this while studying Mars, which, uh, you know, Mars is actually a pretty good example of why this hypothesis probably isn't true. When we look at the example of Mars, where it now looks fairly certain that there was liquid water on the planet and considerable amounts of liquid water early in its history, and it may well have been um, a, a fairly convenient or hospitable environment for life at that time, but it didn't stay that way. And if we and if we can't sort of agree upon the evidence for, or if we can't believe the evidence for the Gaia hypothesis, that still leaves a remaining question as to how did Earth stay habitable, which I think is a really interesting question. Is it possible that it was just dumb luck? Yeah, that's something uh, that I I think that there's probably some combination of that. I think that it probably was partly a luck lucky outcome. I call this the squiggle of life. <laughs> <laughs> the squiggle of life. There's no order to it. Erratic as hell. <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to overmake this point because I think you can take this argument to say that that you know natural systems don't matter. We should just do whatever we want to them. But the point is this sort of flawed view of ecology is being wielded in the movie to uphold an assumption that messing with this natural system of lions on top, you know, is super problematic and upholding a feudal racial hierarchy. Uh, That's my point. That's what I got. I don't have a good transition line to mine. What's yours? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the, the segue that I had was... What would the Lion King be like if we stopped putting all our people stuff on it? Oh, you mean if it was actually just about lions? Yeah. Oh, well, that that actually is my argument. Let's uh, let's talk about it. So nobody looks at Mickey Mouse and thinks, "Hey, that's not mouse behavior," uh, you know, because like he's absurdly characterized. He's not actually a mouse. We know that he's not a mouse, and that's that's pretty much par for the course for a lot of Disney characters up until about the Lion King. But I think. It is interesting because Disney did such a good job with the animation that we sort of transfer all the behavior and think that must also be realistic um, from a biological standpoint. And that just that just isn't the case. Uh, So I kind of wanted to know specifically what was Disney anthropomorphizing here and maybe speculate why. So I called this guy and I asked him about lion lineage. What about uh what about uh, raising young? So I mean, there's this big scene where Mufasa takes Simba out and shows him, you know, the 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 limits of the pride. Or oh, oh are you are you okay? It sounds uh-huh. like you're getting attacked by that bird. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. okay. You're a kind of ibis. You're cool. Oh, cool. <laughs> so uh, this is Craig Packer, a prominent lion scientist. He headed the Serengeti project for 40 years. Um, I spoke to him via Skype from Nairobi, hence the glossy ibis in the background. In the scene where Mustafa is, is acting as if he's going to hand on uh, the territory to his son, that's very much the traditional patriarchy of Western society, where you have sons, the firstborn sons, inheriting the property of their fathers, right? One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Every. But in reality, there are a number of different prides in the same population, 
And the sons do not inherit the property from their fathers. Instead, it's the daughters who inherit the territory from their mothers. Boom. See, there's some there's some mm-hmm. stuff here that I think you're going to be down with, Jimmy. All right, all right. Double matriarchies. I like it. But 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 you know, this was like a huge point of uh, of of Dr. Packer's, which is that the the Lion King is sort of set up in this bubble as though it were the only pride in the world, right? It is Pride Rock. It's one Lion Kingdom, and in fact, that's just not the case. But but before I go on with, to talk about that, and and before we you know say that maybe it should have been the Lion Queen, I think you've got to know that we're imposing not just um, so the, the lineage of humans on lions, we're also imposing our human politics. Female lions are one of the few species on this earth that don't even have a dominance hierarchy. There's no queen. There's no subordinate. There's no alpha. They're all co-equals. Anarchists. Um, and what he tells me is that the males, too, have this really interesting relationship that just doesn't fit neatly into narratives that Disney might prefer. So male lions form what are called coalitions. Uh, so there's the pride. And the pride is really kind of like the female lions and the coalitions are the males that are sort of within that pride. But it it is about, again, it's about co-equals. So Scar and Mufasa would be brothers, right? And rather than take over the pride where they were raised, what would happen is they would strike out when they when they became like teenage lions to go and try and find another pride where the adult males are getting old and maybe weak and they would kill them and then kill all those cubs from those old, weak adult males and then they would take over the pride and start mating with all the females. Um, hmm. And so what Dr. Packer basically says is that all of the tensions between Scar and Mufasa, it's unrealistic because lion coalitions are incredibly tightly bonded. And they only really fight with rival coalitions, with other groups of male lions. And they would be they would be just be like peas in a pod. And the most extraordinary moments I've ever witnessed in lions is when two singleton males who live this horrible life in terror of these large groups all around them, finding each other, and the ex- just extraordinary affection they show, and the relief that's just palpable, that, oh my God, I've got a partner. And they rub each other all the time. They're flopping on top of each other. Aww. That's really heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, I really like it. <laughs> it's like they're teaching like men how to be friends with each other yeah. that show affection. And showing affection. Lions, yeah. lions have a relationship that like adult men in America don't have. They yeah. could aspire to. They don't have to say, I love you, bro. They can just say, I love you. So, so what Dr. Packer sort of says is that you can maybe see a world in which this plot makes sense, where Scar and Mufasa are fighting for control if they were the last lion pride on earth because there would be no other coalitions of males with which they are working together to defeat. And another really important point, if it was also the last pride on earth, so Simba might return to Pride Rock at the end of the movie instead of going off to find a coalition and another group of lions. But again, this movie is skirting actual lion behavior in favor of a very human-centric idea of, in this case, romance. You're aiming towards this monogamous conclusion in the story, which is what we kind of impose on our children. But once he gets there, he's not going to just focus on Nala. He's going to focus on all the females. And again, if it's the only pride on earth, he'll mate with every single female that's there, including his mother and including his mother's mother, as well as his sister's. I don't approve of your wielding of music in this way. <laughs> it's manipulative. I'm just saying they could they could make the actual Lion King, but this song would still be pretty funny. <laughs> and and so I, I guess I guess as I looked through this, I thought you know we love the idea of the wild as humans, you know predator prey relationships, uh, sense of adventure, 
you know, but but the reality is harder to to relate to. I think you know we 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 can't relate to it, so we sort of anthropomorphize. And when you look at these things, you know, each of these major behavior changes really have everything to do with humans and nothing to do with lions. The movie is reinforcing conservative cultural norms around sex, around power and around relationships. And it's reducing the complexity of these actual ecosystems uh, and relationships that are harder to grasp, I think, that don't that don't relate as clearly to our our societies. Yeah. Can I make one more point? You certainly may. So. I want to return to Ami Visha, who is uh, the professor I spoke to earlier who taught that course, Africa is Not a Country. Part of what I'm working on now is this idea of how like, imagery, in many ways, is much more about the audience that consumes it than about the audience it depicts. Um, and one of the first things that she did in this course was have students bring in what was the, the first depiction of Africa that they had encountered. So Lion King and Madagascar uh, came up a lot, the, the two movies. Also, Toto's Africa. Do, do, I don't do, know that do, one. Do, do. Yes, you yes, do. Yes, everyone knows this. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why does that have to be so loud? Yeah. I know that song. I'm sorry. I showed them images, right? And there were cities that they were you know, like, oh, that's New York. And I'm like, no, that's Nairobi. Um, and the actual idea of thinking of Africa as urban, as urban but non-slum urban, or was... I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's still mind-blowing. I was at a talk last week where Africa was only referred to as villages, yet the place they were talking about is a huge city, right? I'm like, Kampala is (laughs) not a village, right? So we can't do this. But that's like, those are kind of what I mean by the limits of our imagination. I know that's a little meta, right? Right. It's the Lion King being kind of a shot-for-shot remake doesn't really bode well I guess it just sort of like sets the imagination for the next generation too right like 20 years from now we're gonna have a new generation of college students or young adults whose first memories of Africa are going to be the Lion King right I'm gonna (laughs) think of Africa as the place to go for safari and that's you know that's the extent It's, it it it's, will be really interesting to see what they do because it it feels to me like the plot has them backed into a corner that that a lot of these ideals ideas are going to be hard to get away from like they're going to screw up lion society <laughs> like they, like how else like you can't, yeah they can't yeah you can't unscrew that up yeah. so surprised if if things change <laughs> Simba hook, Simba yeah. hooking up with his mom and Nala the camera pans away and then the boys are just snuggling in the corner somewhere <laughs> so so. So, like, some things are going to be wrong, but it, it will be interesting to see, like, what lessons they've learned. And I, I, I will say I'm optimistic that the racial overtones will diminish at least. But, like, the idea of Africa as a place without history in which people don't live, I don't know how they get away from that. Like, they've made a movie about animals in Africa. They can't just, like, randomly show Nairobi and be like, oh, by the way, there's people who live here, too. Like, yeah. You know, they, they can, when it, in the panning at the beginning, like there's the waterfall, there's Nairobi, you know, there's sort of people living on the edge. Also, like, it's I like mean, a guy eating a burrito. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they just make a shot for shot remake and then it just pans out at the end and turns out they're in a game park. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that would be, I would, I mean, that would be Twilight Zone epic. Mm-hmm. 
This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Hannah McCarthy, and Jimmy Gutierrez, with help from Samantha Searles. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of watching animal cams and drinking coffee. Also, also, a uh, quick shout out and thank you to Professor Fadili Imshana and Robert Siegel. If you've got suggestions for companion resources for watching the new Lion King, send them our way. Email us at outsidein at nhpr.org. We're going to put together a watching guide to go in our newsletter. It'll include a link to that article that Ami V. Shah recommended. It's funny, smart, hugely influential, and a great piece to read before consuming some Western media about the African continent. You can head over to outsideinradio.org to subscribe. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. We ready? Are you ready? I think so. I'm going to just hit enter a couple He's of spaces on the same page. He said he was ready, and then he was like, well, He's just not. one more minute. Just, I hear a lot of keyboard <laughs> clicks. <laughs> your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com podcast 25.